This is episode 123 of the Beyond the Food show. And today I have my muse on the show, the New York Times bestselling author, Janine Roth. And we're talking about her newest book, This Messy, Magnificent Life. And if by any small part of yourself, you feel that you are broken in any part of you, you have to listen to this episode because Janine will blow your mind and change your perspective on your brokenness once and for all. Are you ready, ladies? Let's do this. My name is Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist. I reversed my diagnosis of anxiety, depression, adrenal fatigue, and obesity by going beyond the food. I can tell you one thing, that willpower, discipline, and deprivation aren't the permanent solution to transforming your relationship to food. So how do you leave overeating, emotional eating, food craving, and binging behind you so you have the food freedom to achieve all of your goal and be happy now? As a top 25 alternative health podcast in the world, this is the Beyond the Food Show. Hey ladies, this is Stephanie and I'm coming to you live from Mallorca, Spain. I am here co-hosting a retreat with some very powerful ladies and I'm recording the intro to this podcast overlooking the ocean. So if you are on Instagram in any way, you got to find me at Steph Dodzie and look at the picture. It's a pretty amazing space. I hope you can join me on the next retreat. But before we go further, today's episode is with my muse, Janine Roth. And I say muse because she is the woman that is responsible for me creating the concept and the method called Beyond the Food. About six years ago, I was in between my corporate job and what was to become my life as a nutritionist, but I wasn't decided yet. And I read her book, Women, Food and God. And I cried because for the first time in my life at 36 years old, I finally got presented with the concept that nothing was wrong with me. I just had an emotional relationship to food that I needed to understand. And that was Janine's gig for 20 plus years. She wrote a vast number of books explaining to women what I'm trying to teach you with the Going to Beyond the Food Show and what my journey has been with food, which is understanding how my soul and my emotion are being expressed through my relationship to food. And that's what Janine wrote for years. And over the last four years, she had another massive, major ha-ha moment, as I like to call it, in my world. And she wrote this newest book called The Messy Magnificent Life. And the topic is something that will reach you, you, me, and most women I know in this community because she talks about self-doubt. She talks about confidence. She talks about us thinking we're broken. Now, how many of you right now think that there's a small part or a big part of you that is broken? Well, 
for me, my entire life, I thought I was broken until just recently. Even when I got into the field of holistic nutrition and I got into the field of emotional eating, I was going at it from the perspective that I was broken. And once I quote unquote fixed the emotional relationship to food, I found something new that I was broken into. And then there was my spirituality and then it was my hormones and then it was my gut. And there was always something that I was searching to fix because at the root of myself, I thought I was broken. And that was the same thing for Janine. So the book that she wrote and the interview we're talking today about is what I believe is at the core of our journey, of our journey together in the Beyond the Food process and also in our journey as a woman who's seeking to fix ourselves. And it is fundamental that we change that perspective, that we go from wanting to fix ourselves to wanting to improve ourselves. Now, for many of you, you're like, well, that's the same thing. Well, I thought so too, but I now realize that there's a massive difference between the two. When we go about trying to fix ourselves, we enter this journey from a place of not accepting ourselves, not loving ourselves, not doing it from a place of love and self-compassion, but thinking we're broken, that there's something wrong with us, that we can't accept ourselves the way we are. And when we look at self-improvement, it's actually from a place of acceptance, love and compassion. So it's an honor for me to be able to bring you Janine Roth. I have been working on getting her on the podcast for over a year. It was an honor to spend an hour with her. And it's an honor for me to be able to bring her to you so she can help all of us. So her newest book, The Messy Magnificent Life, that's what we're going to talk about today. The link to her book is in the show note at stephaniedose.com slash 123. That's where you can purchase the book and also download my free guide to you, The Crave Cure, which is the beginning path of you entering this journey of discovering your relationship to food. So all the links are in the show notes, stephaniedose.com slash 123. So if you're ready, let's bring Janine on. Hi, Jean. Welcome to the Beyond the Food Show. Thank you. It is an honor to have you here. And I've said this to you before we started, you've changed my life. And because of you, I am able to change other women's life and help them transform themselves. So just like you, I have been there too. And what I teach doesn't come from books. It comes from my own body and my own experience. And that's where I would like us to start with your own story and how that one day in New York with your curlers on and your only summer dress, you were standing in the corner waiting for other women and how your journey began from there. Yes, good. Happy to tell you about that. I was living in a kind of food hell for quite a long time and finally, finally realized that dieting was part of the problem for me, shaming myself, depriving myself, definitely part of the problem. And so I decided to stop dieting, which was a terrifying moment for me. I'd either been on a diet or binge for many, many years. And 
as soon as I made that decision, I felt released somehow from an internal prison. I wasn't sure that this was going to work very well since I didn't know how to eat other than dieting and binging. But because I felt released from the, from, oh boy, I would say the concrete prison block of shame and deprivation and punishment and fear, I soon realized that that, that self-loathing that was perpetuated by the shame and the deprivation was a big part of the problem. And without that, I could figure out what my body wanted. And so I did put an ad in the paper and started a very small group for 10 people. But because I was still 80 pounds over my natural weight, uh, I didn't have any clothes to wear and I was, actually didn't have a place to live. I was a nanny in a friend's house, in the basement of a friend's house. She lived down a very long country road. And so I had to meet the women who wanted to be part of that group at an obvious place, which was in front of a liquor store a couple of miles away. And so I had, well, I decided I would get a permanent because I didn't know what else to do since I had no winter clothes to wear and this was starting in the winter. And so I had a friend's summer dress on, a sleeveless dress with an elastic band, got a permanent, but the day of the group, when I went to get the rollers out, in those days you did these things called air dry permanent, she couldn't take them out and told me not to take them out until the next day there was a note on her salon door. So I showed up in front of that liquor store, 80 pounds overweight, and with rollers in my hair. So that was the beginning. Most of the people went screaming away from me. So I started that group and it was a beautiful evening that I had with people and then they met with me weekly for the next couple of years and they were the first contributors to my first book, Eating the Hungry Heart. And from there you went on to write a number of books hold retreats and change probably thousands and thousands of women's life. Yeah. By teaching them that there is more to food than just calories and macros and names of diet. Yes, that's right. I was and have always been, I'm still interested in the core issues that manifest in different behavioral ways. So I never thought the issue was food. Actually, of course, I thought the issue was food for the many years I was dieting and binging. But after that, I realized it had much more to do with my beliefs about myself and what I thought was possible and about life itself. So yeah, that's where I am today. I wrote, I've written nine other books after that first book. My newest book just came out, mm -hmm. came out yesterday called This Messy Magnificent Life. And a third of it is about food because I am always, always interested in that gateway or doorway that I think food offers. It's an expression of our beliefs, but so is our relationship to life itself, how we feel when we're cranky and sick and if we, when we wake up in the morning, what we're telling ourselves our relationships, our relationship to work, money, intimacy. That's what this book covers. This new book, which by the way, for the listener, or if you're watching on YouTube, you have in the show note, stephaniedoza.com slash 123, the link to access or to order the new book of Janine. And 
in the book, you're explaining again to people who may not understand the relationship between food and emotion, but you're also getting to what we'll talk about the root cause of all of that, which is us believing that we're broken. But for people to understand, for those who may not know you or have not been in contact yet with your work, I'd like to ask you a question in relationship to food and emotion, just to put things in context for people. And I'll get back to a story you tell in the book, The Messy Magnificent Life, about a friend of yours who lost her partner of 42 years. And she was sharing with you that she recently, since the loss of her partner, gained 10 pounds. And one of the statements she told you is she used ice cream to feel full, although she felt empty from losing her husband. That's one of the way that food can express into our life and filling our emotion. Is that the uh, perception that you want to share with people? Well, yes, that she used food to comfort herself. She felt as if the grief that she was feeling, which she wasn't really letting herself feel because she was using ice cream as a way to cut herself off from her feelings. People use food to comfort and assuage and what I call change the channel in their minds. And we do that in many different ways. What I talk about in my new book is how not to do that. What will it take to live a life in which you feel like you can show up without getting overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day challenges of life, many of which people who use food or surf the internet for hours at a time or use work or drugs or alcohol, they feel like the challenges of everyday life are just too much. And so I really wanted to address that in this new book, but mostly I wanted to address my own sense of realizing that even after I had healed my relationship with food, I still felt damaged and broken. So I felt like I needed to address that, and that's why I wrote this book. And I can say to you from following your work for the last five years, what you've wrote about in The Messy Magnificent Life is my truth as well. Because although I healed my relationship to food, just like you, I kept searching and my way of searching for me was to go through different health practitioner and getting tests done and thinking that there was always something else that was wrong with me. Yes. And that's what you share in the book. And fundamentally, I still had this belief that I was broken. Yes, I feel like that's the core Oh, I don't know what to call it. It's not an issue. No. It's more than a challenge. I think it's really just about being a human being in a body on planet Earth right now. I think if you really scratch below the surface, most people feel as if they are damaged in some secret or hidden part of themselves. And we put on good shows and we try to pretend we're not. But what I find most helpful is just to really address that directly so that you don't walk around like I did for many years, haunted by the fact that you believe that you're damaged and the way many, many of my retreat students believe they're damaged. How did it came into your own 
circle of awareness and your own realization, what I call in my work, the ha ha moment that you needed to drop what you call in your book, the me project. I had been in therapy for over 30 years and fabulous therapy, really. I mean, some of it was fabulous, some of it not so fabulous. And I'd been a dedicated spiritual student for just as long. And I was finding, so backing up for a second, it felt like I had done everything possible that a human being could do to fix the damage. And I still felt damaged. And so I, the question arose for me, okay, if you line them up back to back 60 years, trying to fix myself, if you put the 30, you know, if you make a linear thing out of 30 Mm -hmm. plus 30, (laughs) although, of course, you can't do that. But still, if you had done that, and it hadn't worked. I mean, I had done a lot of things, but it hadn't done that. And so fix that core belief that something was wrong with me. So I decided to do it to stop the endless search for that and really, truly look at, okay, what are my beliefs and what can I do to integrate what I learned in spiritual practice and what I learned in therapy, what can I do? And that's sort of what the book is about, that process. Can you give us like, for the people that have yet to read the book, the listener of the podcast right now, which I'm sure once you are finished by the interview, you'll go purchase the book. But can you give us a couple of the strategy things that you've done to finally drop the me project and be in the moment of joy of right now. Yes, absolutely. And this is the same process I teach my students and that they do too. And I'll tell you a couple of stories about them, not just about me, but about them as well. Mm -hmm. Because I have been working with, as you said, thousands of people about this. And the progression goes that you really name what's going on, and then you see, okay, what can you do about it? What is there to work with about this? The first thing is what I call disengaging from the crazy ant in the attic. And who that is, is the voice of endless shame and scolding, judgment, criticism, fear, It was an adaptive voice. Everybody's got this voice. Every single person has this voice. And we need this voice. Every one of us needs that voice. It's an internalization of of authority figures. And we need that so that when we're four and five and six and seven, when we go to neighbor's houses, we don't throw food against the wall. And we don't hit people. And we don't bite people. And we learn how to mingle in society such as it is. So we need that voice. The problem is it's become maladaptive and now it scolds us constantly and we don't even realize it. When I teach a workshop, I will ask people after a half an hour to write down the 10 criticisms they've made about themselves in the half an hour. And many, many people 
have at least 20 or 30 or 40 that they've made. And then I ask them to, to tell me what they are and in the you voice. So in the third person, you are this and you are that. And this is so we can start seeing that that crazy ant is not us. That crazy ant really is just a crazy ant up there in the attic. And one important step here is to understand that that voice isn't us. And most people don't realize that. So people do do that. And then I ask them to say what their criticisms are. And it's astonishing. People will get up and say things like, and in this voice, you are disgusting. I can't believe you wore those socks today. I can't believe you didn't wear the ring you thought you were going to wear. I can't believe you thought it was possible to change what is wrong with you like that. So when people see and hear that voice and understand it's going on as long as they're awake during the day, then I ask them to feel the impact that that voice has on them. So we can really, really get it that this voice is going on all day long, but it's affecting us in such deleterious ways to the point that we cower in shame and we feel small and, oh, we feel small and hopeless, really. We just collapse. And so then I start teaching people how to disengage from that voice how to really understand that that voice is not you. First, it takes naming it, seeing the impact of it, and then disengaging from it. And disengaging from it happens in a variety of ways. You figure out what's most effective for you. But I want to keep underscoring that most of us are merged with this voice and or, or believe what it's telling us. So this voice can tell us, look at you. Look at the size of your thighs. You've gained 10 pounds, you disgusting thing. And what, what we need to do is separate what the voice is telling us from what's true. Because the voice has morality connected to it and judgment and shame. It might be true that we've gained 10 pounds. And it also might be helpful to look and see what's going on. You know, what's happening with food and in our relationship with food. So what that, that voice does, the crazy ant makes impossible for us to even look and see what's actually going on. There no change or transformation is possible in the presence of that voice. Once we're separated from that voice, either with humor, we can say to that voice, you think this is a lot? You should have seen what I ate for breakfast. And just get the voice off your back, whatever it takes, or you say, you are not my friend, go away, or stop. So sometimes it's assertiveness, sometimes it's humor that works. Whatever works to get the voice off your back, that's what you need. And then you can be, ask yourself, well, what's going on? What can I do about this? Is there something I can learn? Is there some wisdom here that's here for me? So that's definitely one of the first steps of true and lasting change. And, and I would say to you, amen to that, because for me, 
it was the moment that I still remember. My therapist asked me, very similar to you, asked me in a day to write how many times I was scolding myself in my head. Uh-huh. And I did the exercise. I carried this piece of paper with me for the first hour of the day. And within the first hour, I had 50 marks. Yeah. Because she asked me to put a mark every time I would scold myself. And I could not believe what was going on. It was like the background radio constantly playing in my head. Yes, that's right. That's what I call, that's why I say it's the crazy aunt in the attic. Because if the crazy aunt in the attic is continuing to blare on and on all day long, but you're not listening to it and you don't believe it, it doesn't really matter that it just keeps on blaring on. It doesn't really matter at all. But it does matter if you're sitting in the attic right next to her and you're hearing and believing everything. Yes. Because it's like fueling the fire. Yes. For me, the more I believe, the more the crazy ant, as you call it, or ego in the spiritual world keeps blaring. But once you disconnect with it, there's this natural process, for me anyway, and I'm sure you see that in your student. I know I see it in mine the crazy end just tuned down. Yes, right. And then you start cultivating gratitude or you start cultivating more positive thought and all of a sudden, there's kind of a, we're changing the, the radio chain and then it goes to something with time more positive. Yes. Well, for some of us, for myself, I wouldn't say that's happened. I would say the crazy ant is still there, <laughs> still doing it. The only thing is I'm actually living a couple floors down from the crazy aunt most of the time. I wouldn't say she's turned positive at all. She still is as negative as she's always been. It's just that I'm not listening to her most of the time. Sometimes I still do, and every time I do, it's tough. And it's part, would you say, of what fueled your project of fixing yourself, the me project? Well, I believed what she said. That if I fixed this about, if I was a nicer person, if I was more generous, if I was smarter, if I tried harder, then I would be better and I would be loved and I wouldn't be worthless. I sort of just bought right into the story. And no matter how hard I tried, no matter how many fixes I did, she raised the bar. There mm -hmm. was, it was never good enough. And so, yes. Finally, I caught on that nothing I ever did was going to be good enough. And so what was the point of continuing to try? Now, I want to say here that some people who are listening are probably thinking, well, but if I don't have that as my motivation or inspiration to change, then I'm just going to lay around and do nothing all day long. So that's a misconception. That's a lie that we've bought from the culture in this insane culture that we live in, that you need suffering and criticism in order to motivate you to change. The truth is that without the crazy ant and without the suffering and criticism, you yourself, your own dreams, the promises that you know your life is capable of fulfilling are going to be there. And so you'll be going for what you love, a vision of what you love, the self you know you are, rather than against what the crazy aunt is telling you. 
because it comes back to what's our life purpose because when we are in that that place of fixing ourselves that becomes in one way our life's purpose yes that's right exactly and then so when you say to us we got to drop the me project well like well what else is there and i will make a parallel for the listeners that are when i say we got to drop the food rules and the first thought that women go to well if i drop the food rules i'm just going to eat like there's no end yes right and it's the same thing with the me project right when we think that if we don't try to fix ourselves like what is there with life well we don't realize that the purpose of life is not this endless fix me up project because what happens is it's almost like a conspiracy of how to bind up your energy without without actually revealing what you're doing because think about it for a moment mm. if you tie up all your energy in an impossible impossible nobody's ever accomplished this before so it's an impossible project then you don't have energy to devote to the rest of your life for the what you want to be in alignment with what you love the, you know your energy's all bound up in an impossible project and so i feel like it keeps women in particular tied up in this obsession with their bodies rather than using that energy to change the world and change themselves first because it's an inside job and what we what we feel about ourselves we also bring out to the world so that was a long answer to your question Stephanie but it's a beautiful answer because that's ultimately what the audience the listener are all about because i can say for certainty that we go about this project of losing weight we realize that it's not about weight that it's about our emotion then we go about the project of fixing our relationship emotionally to food then we realize that it's really not about this all we're chasing is being in the moment right now perfect as we should be right and accepting ourselves for what is in the moment right now that's right exactly we're going to take a quick break from our chat to give a shout out to our show sponsor Health IQ and I am so excited to be partnering with them and bringing you forward an innovative insurance company for the American listener. Health IQ helps health conscious people like yogis, runners, cyclists, weightlifters to get lower rate on their life insurance. Just like you save money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on life insurance for living a health conscious lifestyle. Isn't it time that we get rewarded for our good health choices? Now, how do you get started? Very simply by qualifying through the Health IQ quizzes and also, listen to this, if you submit actual training data through the various apps available, you can save additional dollars. To get started now, simply go to stephaniedodzie.com forward slash health IQ and take the test to see if you qualify. And when you get to speak to an agent, mention the code beyond the food to support the show. So get started now on saving money on your life insurance. 
Now a shout out to our other show sponsor, Muse. And I'm very grateful to team up with Muse to bring you the first tool in the world to help you learn to meditate at home. Muse is a wearable brain sensing headband that measure our brainwave and sends the feedback to an app on our personal device. I love my Muse because it transform my meditation practice. I wear it daily for my 10 minute session in the morning and it coaches me through my practice by giving me real time feedback on what's happening in my brain and helping me refocus during my meditation. I love this partnership with Muse because it brings the tool to the first timer and it helps expand the practice of the more advanced meditator. So it's time for you to get your Muse on and learn to calm your mind through meditation. And here's the thing, as a listener of the Going to Beyond the Food show, you get 15% off of the purchase of your Muse. To take advantage of this offer, simply go to stephaniedodier.com forward slash muse. And again, the URL is stephaniedodier.com forward slash muse and register through this URL to get 15% off. So join me in my 10 minutes meditation practice every morning and get our muse on and go beyond the food together. One of the challenge that many women listening and many women in my academy are facing with is their hurt, their deep seated pain that they have from their past. And I know you share that as well. And the need for us to take responsibility in part for what happened to us in the past and processing whatever be it physical abuse or sexual abuse so we can stop that project of fixing ourselves. Can you talk a little bit around the process of accepting this pain that is for some of us in our past? Well, I have a, a, a sort of like double-layered answer to that. For trauma and places that are shot places in our souls and sexual abuse and and for myself, I also experienced sexual abuse. It's not just about accepting it. It's really about digesting, touching into, attending to, loving, with loving support. And that is with a guide or a therapist, those shocked, traumatized places inside ourselves. So um, sometimes... Therapy really is important and necessary. For myself, the therapy that I did, as I might have talked about at the beginning, some of it was just wonderful. And there still came a time where, and there's a piece in this messy, magnificent life about when my therapist told me that it was time to end therapy. And I was shocked because what I realized was I was still waiting for someone to come and rescue me from my childhood. And despite the fact that I had worked on many of those issues before, I still felt like I was owed what I never got. And I was waiting for someone to rescue me. And so there came a time for myself where I realized it wasn't about more therapy telling the same story I had been telling about my childhood, 
over and over again how my mother dragged me across the floor by my hair, how my in my family there was drug addiction, alcohol addiction, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I had I had really done that already. And now was the time for me to realize that it was me that needed to attend to those places in me when they come up. And it's not that they never come up. They do. I still get triggered by certain events, by the way certain people talk to me, rejection or abandonment, hurt, things like that. And what I have to do or what I've learned to do and what I talk about doing in this messy, magnificent life is learning how to turn towards yourself rather than away from yourself. So many of us feel an automatic aversion to when we feel hurt. We just want to get rid of it. We want, to, we want it to disappear. We are afraid to feel it because we're frightened that if we feel it, it will overwhelm us. We'll never get off the bed. We'll never work. It will be too much. All of that. Part of, I teach a four-step process in this book. One of the steps is learning how to turn towards yourself rather than away from yourself when you feel uncomfortable or when you feel hurt. And that's really just a matter. These are all very simple. That doesn't mean they're easy, but they're simple. And they're, of course, very easy if you're willing to do them, but you do that, you turn towards this discomfort very simply. And I tell a story in the book about a woman whose mother had just died. And she herself had gained a lot of weight in the years since her mother died. She felt like if she let herself feel the grief, she'd be overwhelmed. She told me she was like her cat, who she had just taken for a walk, who wouldn't walk, who just lay down on the sidewalk. And she said to me, I feel just like that, my cat. I don't want to walk. I don't want to do anything. And I said to her, well, you know what? Let's, let's just feel where you feel the sadness or the grief right now. And then she told me it was in the center of her chest. It felt heavy. It had a color. It had a pressure. We, we felt it directly in the body. And this is another step of the four steps. Stand in your own two shoes. Land in your body. Take up the space you've been given. Inhabit this body. Feel this body. Most of us our look at our body with bang camera lenses from the outside rather than the inside. When she went into her body and felt what she was afraid to feel, she saw, oh, it's a sensation. It feels heavy. It feels warm. It feels, I can't remember the color she said it was, but as she was with it, she cried for a couple of seconds and then it was over. And then I asked her how she felt about food. Did she need to keep eating? And she said, no, I don't. Why? Because she was feeling the feelings and learning that they weren't as terrible or even terrible at all as she thought. Doesn't mean that feelings don't hurt and that when somebody we love dies, it's not painful. It is, but it's already painful. And if you eat because of that, you double your pain because you ha still have the loss, and then you have the pain of eating to fill it and all the judgments you have about it. You are so brilliant in the way you're expressing that, because it is what we do. We eat to avoid the feeling, 
And then it brings us into that shame and guilt cycle that makes us eat even more and more pain. And while all of this is happening, we're not feeling the emotion that we're trying to avoid. Right. And when we share that with women and we start to introduce them to that, the simplicity of it makes it so that women say, but that can be the answer because I'm so broken. I need something more complicated. Well, first of all, I'm so broken is a thought. That's an idea that you have. That's a story you're making up. And one of the things that I talk about again and again and again in this book, because it's been a real learning edge for me, is being able to tell the difference between a situation or let's call it objective reality or what's happening or the inner sensate experience and the story we're telling ourselves about it. It's the story. So we might feel, let's say, an experience of emptiness. Let's just say we tune into our bodies right now and there's a feeling of, oh, I feel a little hollow. And because most of us, first of all, don't even tune in at all, we make up a story. We feel something that we're not even clear what it is that we're feeling. And then we say, I'm so broken. And from that, I'm so broken, which is just a story. It's just a story. That's all it is, a story. We terrify ourselves half to death. We tell ourselves, oh my God, I can't feel this. If I do, I just, just the most horrible feeling in the world. I can't let anybody see this. If they saw this, they wouldn't love me. This means I'm unlovable. This means I'm not healable. This means, uh, you know, just X, Y, and Z, on and on and on. I am an expert at stories. So I really know this one well. And when I caught on to the fact that there's a difference between the situation. For instance, let's just take a very simple one. Someone, a friend of mine, didn't answer my text. That's the situation, period. From that, I make up endless stories. Oh my God, they decided they don't want to be my friend. It was that thing I said to them last week. I knew I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? You know, now I'm going to lose them. If I lose them, I'll be friendless. I'm a person who never has friends. I'm a person who can't keep friends. I knew I was damaged. I knew something was wrong with me. All of this goes back to one simple thing. Someone didn't answer my text, period. (laughs) (laughs) It is so the truth. And we can say, we can make a parallel to that with body image. Right, the five hundred pounds is just a number on the scale. It's all the story you make around it, and what this two hundred pounds on the scales mean, and how ugly, and what people are going to say. That makes that fact of being two hundred pounds so ugly, and you wanting to get rid of it. Right. There's nothing inherently ugly yes. about weight. Weight just simply is weight. What you say to yourself about it. Now that's another story. And most of us create our own suffering through the stories. The suffering comes from not from what's happening 
or the objective reality of a situation, but from our interpretation and our opinions about that. Back to the crazy ant. Right. It's back to the crazy ant. It's also back to the basic nature of having a personality, mm. you know, a sort of having an ego as you talked about it before, because nobody has taught us how to actually stay with ourselves. We need to learn this. This is something that we need to learn. This is not something that we've been taught. And so it's sort of a, oh, an illuminating, freeing, absolutely astonishing fact that most of us get what's happening mixed up with our interpretations about what's happening. What our story from our ego, and then you're so right. That's one of my personal belief is that we, and because of our culture in North America, we are not being taught how it is to be a human being. Other culture have this teaching. We don't. Uh -huh. So we're now at 42 years old in my case. And by the age of 37, that's when I was taught that there was kind of this dual thing inside of me called the ego me. And would I have known that when I was younger, my life could have been so different? Yes, possibly. I mean, sometimes things happen yeah. and we learn and none of us has enlightened parents. No. So everybody's parents have their own shticks, mm -hmm. as I like to say, and we learn those. And so if you had learned that, it's quite possible you wouldn't have learned something else. Well, I wouldn't be here because I wouldn't have the story <laughs> right. around That's food, right. right? Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. And it's about learning from those events in our life and taking them as a teacher instead of us building guilt or shame around it and living from there. There's another quote from the book that I'd like you to expand on. You say, we need to move from warrior to warrior. And excuse my accent here, but I'm sure you know what I mean, right? Yes. How much of a change that can be in life? Right. You know, since I wrote that, I've actually changed my mind a little bit. I'm not about the worrier part. That movement from worrying to cutting through, really, to the truth of what's going on is exactly the process of what we're talking about. Being able to tell the difference between what happens to you and your story about what happens to you, your opinion, your interpretation. And part of this, this is another practice I teach. I'll tell you about two other practices that I teach. One is the not complaining practice. And not complaining means that you're not stuck in negativity. And if you pay attention to most of your conversations, as I did with mine, you'll find that most of them are a fight against reality. They're a fight against what's going on. And so it keeps you mired in negativity, just fighting against what's already happened, which is another way we bind up our energy. We're in disagreement with something that we can't possibly change. What's the point of that? There isn't really. So I recommend, I give everybody who's listening a two-day challenge. Stop complaining for two days. See what happens. 
because when you stop complaining, you become much more aware of what's in the background of goodness that's in the background. And that leads me in to the next practice that I teach, which is the what's not wrong practice. Ask yourself when you wake up in the morning, before you go to sleep at night, and many times a day, and this takes a second each time, what's not wrong right now? And when you do that also, you stop your fight against what's already happened. So it could be that although you don't have a job you love, you still have a job. Or although your thighs are bigger than you'd like them to be, you have thighs, you have legs, you have arms, you have a transport mechanism (laughs) to get you around the earth. So we often take those things for granted. We don't pay attention to the generosity of life itself that's around us. The fact that we have a floor to walk on, an earth to stand on, water coming out of the tap, very essential things that we're not appreciating, that we take for granted, that keeps us mired in this hair of negativity into this project of fixing ourselves and then encourage that vicious cycle constantly Mm -hmm. by not being grateful for what's currently in our life. Yes, right. And sometimes as you teach, it's a simple change in perspective. It is. And part of it is being willing to take the moment. You know, we've gotten so used to the ways we already are that actually making the effort, this takes effort to even ask yourself what's not wrong, takes a willingness to get out of your usual way of doing things. And often, and we'll kind of wrap it up at this point, the interview, but all of this is wrapped around the fact that we're trying to avoid what we believe to be more painful than the current state. So we're wrapped around this wanting to be better and changing ourselves because we feel that what we are currently is more painful. Does that make sense? Yes. But you know, that's part of what I was saying in a very light way, not in a literal way. It's the conspiracy Mm -hmm. of binding up our energy of keeping ourselves involved in a lie that something's wrong with us. And all of this is preventing us from, or, fueling the not being in the moment and not loving what we are, who we are at that moment? Well, I would say it even stronger than that. I'll go back to the title of my book right Mm -hmm. now, This Messy, Magnificent Life. The messiness of our lives, if we are with it, the so-called messiness can lead us to the magnificent. So the promise here is a promise of gorgeousness, mm-hmm. of magnificence, of beauty, that which is waiting for us, asking for our attention, but we're not paying attention because we're just bound up in what's wrong instead of what's right. That's a beautiful way of wrapping up this interview. One more question for you. What is next for you? Well, I'm on book tour right now, mm-hmm. so it's all about what I'm doing now. Um, awesome yes and do you have any retreats coming up in may 
May? In Northern California. Perfect. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well, which is on your website. Yes, that's fabulous. So stephaniedoze.com slash episode 123. And then you can get the link to the book, the retreat in the website from Jeannie. So thank you very much for having spent this time with me today. It's been an honor. Yes, I wanted to also let people know that I'm teaching a masterclass very soon for people who have a copy of the book called Women, Weight and Power, Releasing the Energy of Obsession. And that will be on the internet. That will be a masterclass I'll be teaching on the internet. And people can get that when they order a copy of the book. Awesome. So we'll link to the book on your website once they place the order via the link, they will be having access to that workshop. The link there would be janinerothbook.com. Perfect. So we'll link to that as well, or you can go straight to it. When you purchase a book, you'll get access to this very powerful workshop. Great. Okay, Stephanie, thank you. Thank you. Have yourself a good day. You too. Bye-bye. There you have it, ladies. I hope this interview, I hope this time you spent with me and Janine help you understand how to go about this journey of life from a different perspective, but also to know that there's nothing wrong with us as we are right now. We can look forward to improving ourselves, but we cannot go about it as being broken. I hope this will serve you in a big way. And if you think this can help any other women in your life, I would ask you to do them, do you, do me a favor and share this episode with them, either from YouTube, from your podcast app. And also, if you have the time, leave me a review on the podcast. This helps me tell me that you're liking the show, but also help me rank the podcast higher so more women can get this powerful message that we need to go beyond the food and that nothing is broken about ourselves. I love you. I thank you for being here with me and I look forward to see you on the next episode. Did you know that nine out of 10 women are struggling with their relationship to food? Overeating, emotional eating, binging and craving are real. Clearly the solution we have been taught aren't working. I believe to have food freedom, it means that we must learn to have a relationship with our hunger so we can finally be at peace with food and eat normally without guilt or shame, which is why I wrote the Crave Cure Guide. I want to show you how to have a completely different relationship with food so that you can be in control of what you eat, achieve your goal, and be the powerful woman you were meant to be. The best part is this book and the step-by-step process is absolutely free. To receive your free copy, simply go to stephaniedodzier.com forward slash guide and we can get started right now.